So, uh, welcome to Theological Equipping. Uh, a couple of semesters ago, we talked about bibliology, that is, what is uh, Scripture, how do we read it, how do we interpret it, how do we apply it, those kinds of things. Uh, last semester, we talked about theology proper, that is, the, the nature, the character, the attributes of God. Talked about Trinitarianism and the deity and humanity of Christ, all of these uh, sorts of things. This semester, what we're talking about is anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. We need to know something of ourselves in order to understand uh, God and uh, his, uh, the image that He has created us in, and then also to understand something of the gospel. Uh, the gospel is, uh, is only uh, applicable to us if we understand who we are, and, uh, and so we'll get into the doctrine of sin and those kinds of things. Uh, but what we want to talk about uh, right now is really talking about the fact that when we were created, we were created in the image of God, as we've talked about the past couple of weeks, And therefore, we have dignity, we have value, we have worth, all of these sorts of things. But at the same time, we weren't created as sort of amorphous, genderless beings, right? Gender is not some sort of social construct. This is something that, according to the Bible, is embedded into our very DNA. It's something uh, that is embedded into the very essence of who we are. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today. And this is going to bring up all kinds of uh, somewhat controversial questions, things like the Scripture support distinctions and differences uh, between man, man and woman in the home and in the church? And if so, what are those differences? And does the Bible support chauvinism or feminism? And can a woman serve as pastor or elder? And can a woman preach or teach within the context of uh, the church? We should be able to get to all of those uh, questions in particular, but there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of other questions that might uh, come up. And so really what we're going to do today is really this is just a primer. Uh, This is just uh, our opportunity to kind of prime the pump of discussion on this. And then hopefully this will then create uh, in us opportunities for us to have uh, some ongoing dialogue. And so for you to discuss this in your community group, for you uh, to contact the staff and say, hey, will you send me some resources that I uh, can read? For you to contact an elder and say, hey, will you sit down and help me with this because I've been chewing on it and it just doesn't seem like it's good uh, or uh, right. And so uh, we won't get a really a comprehensive view of these topics today, but hopefully we'll at least begin to really uh, have us uh, thinking about these in biblical categories. And so I want to start with, uh, with this. I want to start with the idea, uh, we'll spend very little time on it, but it's really the foundation of what we're talking about uh, today. This is really vitally important to our conversation, and that is that male and female are equal in their essence, their substance, their nature, their, uh, their personhood, and their value. Male and female are equal in substance, nature, personhood, and value. They're equal in their substance. We're both, whatever it means to be human, we're both human, male and female. We're equal in nature or essence, in the same way, we're equal in our personhood as we both share whatever it is to be a person, our relational and rational capabilities. We're equal in dignity and value or as both were created in God's image and both are redeemed alike. And so a number of passages uh, that we can read in support of this. Genesis 1, you should have these in your notes. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 3.7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 
Joel 2.28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the giftings uh, that the Spirit gives uh, alike to everyone, not just uh, men, but men and uh, women. So men and women are absolutely equal before God and each other. So there's no place, whatever we say today, there's no place in Scripture uh, for male dominance or superiority or chauvinism or anything like that uh, in the church. But the question that we really want to answer today is, does equal, the fact that men and women are equal, does that mean that they're interchangeable? Does equal imply interchangeability? Or does equal access to redemption imply equal access to all responsibilities and roles? Does equal access to God's redemption imply equal access to responsibilities and roles? And what we'll see is that is not the case. That equal doesn't mean interchangeable. That there is a particular glory of being a man and there's a particular glory of being a woman. And we shouldn't distort those two different glories. We shouldn't uh, try to get rid of the distinctions that God has embedded into us as men and women. Men and women are fundamentally equal, but biblically we see that they're functionally distinct. Fundamentally equal, but functionally uh, distinct. And so again, although equality is absolutely vital to the conversation, that's probably not what anyone in this room is dealing with. No one in this room is probably dealing with the idea that maybe men and women aren't equal. Maybe men are better than women, or women are better than men, or something like that. So we won't spend the bulk of our time uh, on that particular subject. We're going to move on from it. But I don't want the fact that we're moving on uh, to in any way detract from the idea that this is the foundation. So before we get started, I want to start with uh, the question of why. Why is it that there are gender distinctions? Uh, And there's two really main views uh, that... uh, uh, that I, I want to kind of expose and show these are not what the Bible is going to ground the differences between the gender in. What are the two uh, main views for kind of cultural critiques of, uh, of gender differences? Uh, and so the first one is that all distinctions that we see in the Scripture, all any differences between men and women and their roles and responsibilities in the home or in the church, anything like that, are just a result uh, of the fall. And so you might see that sometimes if you're reading a, a book or listening to a sermon or reading an article online, you might see something that says, yes, absolutely, the Bible is going to talk about there being differences in roles and responsibilities between men and women, but those are merely a result of uh, the fall. Uh, in response, I would say that the fall doesn't create distinctions and differences. In fact, the, the, there is an order to creation uh, itself, even before the fall. Even Eve is made a helper for Adam. Adam names Eve. What the fall is going to do is not create distinctions and differences. The fall is going to distort God's intended distinctions and differences. Does that make sense there, the difference between those? Uh, the, the fall doesn't create distinctions and differences between men and women. The fall distorts those distinctions between uh, men and women. In fact, if you look at creation itself, creation is about God establishing order. There's a certain order to creation, so therefore redemption involves order uh, as well. So we can say that this is not merely a product or a byproduct of the fall. But the second sort of cultural critique is that yes, there are these gender differences we see in the scriptures, there's differences in roles and responsibilities, but it's just a cultural issue. It's related to the fact that uh, maybe in Corinth or Ephesus, uh, some of the churches where Paul writes letters to uh, dealing with some of these issues, that uh, maybe women in those particular contexts were just uneducated. 
So it's not intended to be something that is applicable for us today. It's something that's limited to the church in Ephesus, the church uh, in Corinth. Or maybe there's a particular, uh, particularly disruptive context in one of these churches. And so it's not that, uh, that all women everywhere or all men everywhere, it's talking about a particular uh, context. Or maybe uh, Paul is not really uh, saying what, he, what should exist. He's just saying what does exist. He's just speaking to the culture that is uh, around him, similar to the way that he does with slavery. Uh, Paul doesn't think slavery should exist, but since slavery does exist, he just simply uh, gives certain uh, roles and responsibilities there. And so people say, maybe the gender issue is like that. Yes, there's roles and responsibilities uh, within the Bible, but those shouldn't exist. Paul's just kind of playing the cultural uh, game. And, and the consequence of all of these sort of ideas uh, should be obvious to us. Because if this is just something that's cultural, then it doesn't really apply to us today, right? If this is something that's just related to Ephesus or just related to Corinth or just related to the first century, then how we apply it today might be vastly different from the way that the text might tell us to apply it. So it's really important for us to see these are not the reasons that Paul gives throughout Scripture for why there are differences, why there are distinctions uh, within the home and the church on the basis of gender. And so I just want to read a few passages uh, to help kind of orient us to some of the rationale that he gives for uh, these distinctions. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You should have these in your notes. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 2. Now I commend to you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So, again, not just something cultural. He has grounded our understanding of headship and submission, our understanding of the different roles and responsibilities between men and women. He has grounded that somehow in Trinitarianism, in Christology, that there is an analogy. Somehow, a, a woman's submission to her husband is like, it's uh, analogous to a, uh, the way that Christ, the Son of God, submits to His Father. Absolutely equal. They're equal in essence and worth and value, all those sorts of things, but there is uh, still a role. So there is, they're fundamentally equal, but functionally distinct. Ephesians 5, 22 through 25, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. By the way, we preached through the book of Ephesians uh, last year, so if you want uh, a better defense of Ephesians 5, uh, I'd encourage you to go and listen to that sermon. But notice there that he says, again, there is an analogy there. The same way that the, the church submits to Christ, so a wife should submit to her husband. Again, he's not arguing on the basis of culture. He's not arguing just on the basis of the fall. He's arguing in these sort of transcultural realities. In other words, this is not something that's limited to the first century any more than marriage is limited to the first century or Christology is limited to the first century. First Timothy chapter 2, we'll spend some time in this in a little bit, but for now, just look at it. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, uh, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So see there, there is a certain order from the order of creation, Paul is going to argue that these things exist and should exist. That gender differences exist as a reflection of God's created 
order. Adam was formed first, then Eve. 1 Corinthians 11, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. There is an order. There is, a, uh, there is an implication of the fact that man was created first and then woman. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Notice this next phrase, as in all the churches of the saints. Not just the church in Corinth, not just the church in Ephesus, not the, just the church of the first century. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. We'll talk about what that means and what that doesn't mean uh, in a moment. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything to desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Again, we'll uh, talk through uh, some of that. But from the, just this glance, all I did is just read some passages some of you probably found some of those passages to be somewhat offensive, to be somewhat biting, to be somewhat blunt. All we did is read through those. We're going to work through some of them here in a moment. But what I want you to see from having read through those things is Paul's argument is not just these are cultural things. These are things that are limited to particular churches at a particular time. He doesn't say these are cultural things. He says these are transcultural things. And so, therefore, they are applicable and uh, good. And, uh, and so we can't... We can't simply ignore the reason that Paul gives. He gives all of these different reasons, A, B, C, D, E. He gives all these reasons for why there are these gender differences. We can't uh, remove or deny or ignore what Paul says and then simply speculate our own reason. So we're taking away, Paul says, this is the reason that there should be differences. And we say, no, that's not the reason. It's really cultural. We can't do that with Scripture. He's speaking as an inspired apostle. We talked about the importance of that in the sermon a couple of weeks ago. And so these gender distinctions are transcultural. They're supracultural. They stand above culture, and they speak, they press upon every culture in existence, and they're God-designed. They're not something to be fought against. They're something to be treasured and protected and proclaimed and enjoyed. That's what we're going to hopefully try to do today. But let me, I want to ask this question. So it might come into your mind, you might think, okay, so you're saying that men and women are equal, but you're also saying that there is a priority, there is this order to creation. Uh, you're also saying that they are functionally distinct. It doesn't, don't words like submission and headship and authority essentially imply inferiority or inequality? Is there a contradiction there? If you're saying that there is authority, doesn't that necessarily imply inferiority and uh, equality in response to say not at all? We've already seen that, that uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is in some way an analogy for this. This is really helpful for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, absolutely equal to His Father in essence and worth and value and dignity, all those kinds of things, and yet He submits to His Father. Does His submission in any way imply that He is inferior? Absolutely not. So you see there that there is submission, there is authority, and yet at the same time there is equality. Likewise, we see that play out in other realms, right? The Scripture is going to tell members of a church to submit to their elders. That doesn't mean the elders of the church are, are fundamentally better. doesn't mean necessarily that they're smarter. doesn't mean that they're wiser. doesn't mean that they're necessarily godlier. There is a, an order there. Or the way that the Scripture tells us to submit to government. doesn't mean that the citizens are inferior to the king or the president or congressman or whatever uh, it might be. So if sin consists of this desire, in its very essence, it consists of this desire for us to be our own boss, to be our own God, to be our own 
uh, law. Thus, authority, any sort of talk of, of authority is seen as pejorative. Any sort of talk of authority is seen as some sort of negative ideal. But what the Bible is going to say is uh, authority is not this negative pejorative thing. Authority exists for our flourishing. So as long as we think of authority as being some sort of, we're being pressed down, we're always going to come to the text, and whenever we see these gender distinctions, we're always going to rail against them and try to work against them and fight against them. Why? Because we don't see that authority is God's means of helping us to flourish and to, uh, to thrive. So what I want to do is really accomplish two things today. Uh, the first thing is I just want you to see that there are different boundaries uh, in Scripture, that Scripture itself is going to draw different boundaries for men and women. But the second thing is, I think, a little bit uh, grander of a task, uh, and that is hopefully to help you see that those uh, differences, those boundaries that the Bible uh, is going to draw for us are not uh, evil, they're not wicked, they're not oppressive, they're not unjust. Not only are they not those things, but they are beautiful. They're good. They're right. There's something that we can treasure. There's something that we can cling to. There's something that we should enjoy and delight in. That's one of the tragic results of hardcore feminism is that it tends to blur what the Scripture is going to proclaim, which is there is this essential value in each gender for its own sake. There's value in being a man simply for being a man. There's value in being a woman simply for being a woman. What feminism says is the way that women gain value is becoming more like men. Whereas the Bible says the way that you are beautiful as a woman is not by becoming more like a man. It's by simply embracing your femininity. Femininity itself is this beautiful uh, thing in the Scripture. The biblical position is a woman has worth, a woman has value and beauty in her femininity as expressed by these biblical roles and uh, responsibilities. And uh, so that's the goal. First, that you would see that this is true, and then second, that you would see that this is something not to be fought against or not even to be begrudgingly accepted, to begrudgingly submit to, but that you might see that this is something that is uh, beautiful and right and something to be uh, treasured. And it's not merely something that is good for the church or merely good for men, but this is something that's good for women as well as it is the means by which women can flourish uh, and thrive uh, in all different aspects of society. So I want to begin with uh, talking about role distinctions in the home, and then we'll talk about role distinctions in the church. Those are the two realms that we see most clearly the implications or applications of uh, these different differences that we see uh, in Scripture. So role distinction in the home. I don't think you have this first uh, passage, so you might just have to listen, or you can open your Bible to Genesis 2. Genesis 2, 18 through 25, this is kind of the foundation. When Jesus is asked about marriage, this is where he goes. Uh, and everything here is significant. We'll see uh, Paul is going to uh, talk about uh, this order of creation as being highly significant for us. He expounds upon it uh, and says the fact that uh, man was formed first, uh, the fact that man names woman, all of these sorts of things, the fact that Eve is described as a helper that's fit for a man. In other words, uh, she corresponds to, she's like and yet unlike. There's a, there's a similarity and a dissimilarity so that men and women fit together. Uh, and, uh, and so Genesis 2, 18 through uh, 25, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not uh, ashamed. So this is kind of the foundational Old Testament text. There are a number of other texts we could look at in the Old Testament, but just for the sake of time, again, because we're, we're not able to do kind of an exhaustive survey of the subject, really just trying to do a primer here. We'll move on to the New Testament and, uh, and look at a few passages uh, that are particularly uh, instructive for us. Ephesians 5, 22 through 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he goes into this exposition of how Christ has loved uh, the church. Colossians 3. 18 through 19, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Titus 2, 3 through 5, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, likewise, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold, jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So note that uh, wives uh, in all of these different passages are told to be subject or to submit or to be submissive uh, to their husbands. And that's then qualified. It says, as to the Lord, or as is fitting in the Lord, or so that the word of God may not be uh, reviled. So the question is, how does the church submit to Christ? How does the church submit to Christ? In this way, should the wife submit to her husband? So how does the church submit to Christ? Think about that for a second. Different ways in which the church submits to Christ. By honoring Christ obedience, with gladness, all of these uh, sorts of things. Now, it doesn't say every, in every single way, you know, we worship Christ, but that doesn't mean that a wife should worship her husband. But in all of these different ways, uh, the, the, there is this opportunity for us to see this analogy. The way that the church is to submit to Christ is an analogy for us to picture the way that a wife is to submit to her husband. And the reason he gives in a number of these passages is, for the husband is the head the husband is the head of his wife. So what does this word head mean? In the Greek, it's kephale. What does uh, this word mean? Well, there's uh, a, a, just an anatomical use in the Scripture. 
uh, like when Jesus said, would say to uh, anoint your head and to wash your face. In other words, just this thing that you think of as a head. Uh, there's also uh, other uses in Scripture. Occasionally, the word head means source, like the head of a fountain or the head of a river or something like that. But the primary uh, meaning that we see in, in regards to non-anatomical uh, uses of uh, the word kephale is to imply some sort of authority. Uh, it's the implication of authority. So think of these passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. For, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Gave him as head, in other words, being authority over the church. Ephesians 4, 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ. By the way, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 are really helpful because they're both within the book of Ephesians. They're both used by Paul. Uh, and so if we're asking the question, what does Paul mean by head in Ephesians 5? It's helpful to look, what does he mean by head in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4? And in those contexts, he means authority. Colossians 2.10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. All right? And so you have this idea, uh, the reason that a wife is to submit to her husband is for the husband is the head. And that word implies uh, authority. Now, obviously, authority can be abused, right? We all have seen different ways that authority has been abused. That's true of all authority, but the potential of abuse doesn't negate the responsibility to submit. The husband has authority to lovingly lead. The, ho the husband doesn't have authority to abuse. His authority doesn't extend uh, that far. That's beyond the boundaries of his uh, headship. And so Scripture itself is going to deal with uh, this potential abuse uh, of authority by giving parameters and prescriptions. Uh, and so husbands are told to love their wives. Husbands are said to love their wives as Christ loved the church is the qualifier there. So how does Christ love the church? Think about that for a second. How does Christ love uh, the church? Does He love the church by lording His authority over her? Does He love the church by being abusive? Does He love the church by any of those kinds of things? Of course not. The way that Christ loves the church is through humility and service and sacrifice, using His authority in order to serve others, using His authority in order to sacrifice Himself, using His authority in humility. So how does Christ love the church? In that way, should a husband love his wife. So just some uh, conclusions based on uh, these texts as it relates to uh, the issue of uh, role distinctions in, uh, in the home or in marriage. First one, that marriage is a divinely intended institution involving the union of two equal individuals. Marriage is a divinely intended institution involving the union of two equal in individuals. Secondly, though, that equality does not mean interchangeability. There is a unique, uh, there's a unique, unique beauty uh, to manhood and a unique beauty to womanhood, and those things shouldn't be blended. Those things shouldn't be confused. Those things shouldn't be conflated. So equality does not mean interchangeability. Third, there are proper roles for each person within the marriage, which are part of God's created order and cannot be replaced. Not only can they not be replaced, but they should be treasured. They're not something to merely begrudgingly accept. I see it in the Scripture, and so I begrudgingly accept this is true, but I'm going to rail against it. I'm going to secretly despise it. I'm going to find it oppressive and unjust or whatever it might be. 
Not only are these things true, but they're beautiful, they're good, they're right, they're something that should be treasured as all of God's Word is to be uh, treasured. Fourth, the man is to sacrificially love, serve, and lead his wife. That's the role uh, that God has given to husbands, to sacrificially love, serve, and lead his wife. The woman is to love, respect, and submit to the authority of her husband. That's the role that uh, God has given to wives, to love, respect, and submit to the authority of her husband. And then lastly, neither the husband's headship nor the wife's submission is contingent or uh, conditional. Notice it doesn't say to love your wife uh, as, uh, as long as she respects you or as long as she is willing to submit to you. It says to love your wife regardless. You love your wife as Christ loved the church. In other words, if you want to take your cue for how you love your wife, don't look at whether or not she's respecting you, whether or not she's honoring you, whether or not she's submitting to you. You look just at Christ. That's your goal. And likewise for a wife. It doesn't say respect your husbands as long as he is worthy of respect. There are all kinds of opportunities for us and and places where God calls us to respect people who inherently are not really worthy of respect. They're worthy of respect only because of a certain office. So we don't respect on the basis of whether or not someone is worthy of respect. We respect on the basis of what God has commanded of us. There's all kinds of questions that come up uh, on this uh, related to uh, application. uh, And uh, and so I just want to mention two, and then we'll have time during the Q&A if you want to explore some more. So are we saying that this necessarily means that women can't work outside the home? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. The virtuous wife in Proverbs 31, she's involved in fashion and real estate and all of these uh, sorts of things. So we're not saying that a woman can't work outside the home. That's not what I think the Bible is going to say. But it is going to say that a woman should not forsake what is primary for what is secondary. A woman should not forsake her role as a wife and as a mother assuming that she is uh, those things, in order to pursue something which is not as primary as those uh, roles. By the way, this also means that it, it doesn't necessarily mean that a wife couldn't make more than her husband. A wife could make more uh, than her husband, but the, uh, the husband still bears the primary responsibility as being uh, the provider and uh, should sense and feel the weight of that responsibility. Does this mean that a wife is simply a pushover and does whatever uh, she's told? No. If the husband were to ask a wife to do something that she were to disagree with, she has every right and responsibility to push back on that respectfully, lovingly, uh, to, uh, to ask questions, to, uh, to voice her reservations, whatever it might be. But if he were to still lead, uh, then she should follow. But obviously, if he were to lead her some way that is actually outright explicitly sinful, then she has a responsibility not only to not obey that, but also to potentially contact the authorities or the church or whatever it might be if there's areas of uh, abuse or sinful activities. And so uh, those are just two of the questions that typically come up when dealing with uh, this issue. So that's role distinctions uh, within the home. Husbands are given this responsibility to lovingly lead uh, their homes. Wives are given the responsibility to, uh, to lovingly, respectfully uh, submit to the leadership of their Husbands, I'm sure there are a billion questions, and uh, we'll get to some of them at the end. But let's talk, tackle role distinction in the church first. Again, these are the two primary areas where we see these. If we attempt to apply what we see in Scripture regarding the home and the church, beyond the home and the church, things get progressively gray, progressively ambiguous, and so we're just kind of staying tethered to these issues. When it comes to role distinctions in the church, there are two primary positions 
uh, on the uh, sort of evangelical spectrum of interpretation and uh, two broad categories and really a, a, a broad range within each camp. The first one is called egalitarianism, and the second one is called complementarianism. Egalitarianism and complementarianism, all right? So, egalitarian means that uh, egalitarians believe that equality negates any need for functional restriction or submission in the church or in the home, but we're talking about the church section uh, here. So according to egalitarians, every position within the church, every responsibility, every role within the church should likewise be open to men and women. There should be no difference on the basis of gender, but the only thing that should matter is just simply competency or calling or whatever uh, it might be. And so this view is going to understand whatever you see in the Scripture, it's, that's going to suggest there being submission and authority and role differences and distinctions within the Scripture. Anything that you're going to see about that is just simply a cultural convention, which we already talked about, or that uh, Galatians 3, which talks about there's neither male nor female or something like that, is somehow going to be the trump card that you play in order to kind of cancel out another uh, text. And so that is... Uh, that is uh, egalitarianism. Complementarianism, which would be the broad category in which we find ourselves at Parkway, uh, is going to recognize that there are God-mandated uh, distinctions and roles and responsibilities in the church between the genders. Not on the basis of competency. This is not saying that men are more competent. It's not saying that men are more intelligent. It's simply saying that according to Scripture, there has a, a particular calling that God has made where there is an order to His uh, creation. And, uh, and so, this is complementarianism, that although men and women are absolutely equal, they're equal in their essence and value and dignity and personhood and all of these sorts of things, they're fundamentally equal, but they're functionally distinct. And those distinctions extend beyond the home into the way that the church is intended uh, to uh, function. That's the essence of complementarianism. But it, it really exists on this really large uh, spectrum. At the very least uh, is this sort of shared idea that the office of elder, elder, pastor, those are uh, synonymous within the, uh, the, the New Testament. So the office of elder or pastor is uh, reserved for men. So technically that's all it takes to be complementarian. You just have to simply say, uh, I believe that uh, the office of elder or pastor is reserved for men, and that makes you a complementarian. But... Uh, but beyond that, churches are vastly different in the way that they attempt to apply their complementarianism. And so you might have two complementarian churches, and yet the way that they apply these uh, realities is going to be vastly uh, different. And, uh, and so I think that the term even is probably growing increasingly unhelpful. It's somewhat helpful in saying what a church doesn't believe. It's somewhat helpful in saying what a church doesn't believe, that a church doesn't believe that there are no role distinctions but not what it does believe, which is what those distinctions actually entail uh, for uh, men and women. So some complementarian churches allow women to occasionally preach or to teach mixed-gendered classes or to serve as ministers with responsibility over men. And, uh, and so in addition to what we have seen elsewhere, just the general uh, biblical uh, environment of gender relations I think the primary text for us to look at is 1 Timothy 2 and trying to wrestle through where we land. So again, we're a complementarian church, but where we land, even on that spectrum, I think it's going to be helpful for us to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
We'll start in verse 8. Your, your notes might start in verse 9, but verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a a transgressor. So before we get to this prohibition, I want you to notice there is this really important allowance. All right, there's a really important allowance there that Paul allows. In fact, he even commands that which was forbidden by the Jewish rabbis of that period, which was the teaching of women. All right, he's going to allow for and even command that which was uh, the uh, prohibited within his culture, that rabbis of that culture would not allow women uh, to, uh, to be educated. And so this is not merely Paul playing into the cultural hand that he has been uh, given. So the Jewish culture didn't allow that. The Greco-Roman culture is going to allow women to be priests. Uh, and, uh, and so there are a lot of opportunities for him to simply uh, appeal to his culture, and he doesn't do that. He appeals back to something in God's created order. It's also important to recognize that whenever it says, that I do not allow a woman to uh, teach or to exercise authority, that he's not saying that all female teaching is prohibited. He's intending to provide instruction for the context of the church. First Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 through 15, so the same book. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So to take this and to extrapolate beyond the church uh, would, uh, would be getting uh, into an area that is well beyond what Paul intends. Uh, Priscilla helped to teach Apollos. That's an example of a, a place where a woman comes alongside and helps to, uh, to teach Apollos. Uh, but it's important to note that even that text in uh, Acts 18, it says that they took him aside. So this is not Priscilla standing up and teaching in the gathering of the saints. This is something that is being done uh, more like sitting down over a cup of coffee and explaining uh, and talking. And she's doing it alongside uh, her husband. Women are told to teach other women. Titus 2, 3 through 4, uh, that women are to, uh, to teach what is good. Women are told to teach children, Proverbs 1.8, do not forsake your mother's teaching. Timothy himself was taught by his mother and grandmother. Uh, we see that from 2 Timothy chapter 1 and chapter 3. And, uh, and so uh, it's not that all female teaching is prohibited. There's a certain context and a certain type of female teaching which is prohibited. So what is prohibited? Uh, well, there's two things. Again, this is within the context of the local church. The further we get away from that, the less relevant this text becomes or applicable, applicable. So there's two things that are prohibited. One is women teaching men and women exercising authority over men. Now, there are some who would argue that this is really only prohibiting one thing and not two. They would say that this is really only preventing women from holding the office of elder or only preventing authoritative teaching or teaching with authority. So there are some who uh, might say that uh, it's not all teaching, but this particular type of teaching that is called authoritative teaching. And, uh, and so I want to, uh, so she can occasionally preach, she can occasionally teach or something, as long as she does not do so, quote-unquote, authoritatively. 
And so I want to work through why I don't think uh, those views are uh, correct. And instead, this refers to two separate, although they are related functions, uh, that a woman cannot teach men and a woman cannot exercise authority over men, again, within the context of the local church. We're not talking about calculus or history or geography or something uh, like that. So what I did is uh, I put the uh, Greek on your sheet. You don't have to read Greek in order to get what I'm saying there. Notice that there are some words that are in bold and some words that are underlined. If you know what the word bold means and you know what underlined means, you can follow along with what I am about uh, to say. Um, okay, so the passage, the, the first reason that I think that this view, that this really is only limiting one thing, uh, is deficient is because uh, there is this use of two distinct infinitives. An infinitive is a verb form that, uh, that takes a tube in front of it, so to teach or to exercise authority. And, uh, and so notice there the two words in bold, all right? Notice there the two words in bold. Again, you don't have to be able to read Greek. All I want you to see is this is the actual Greek text. I want you to see I'm not just simply making this up, uh, all right? So if you go and you find an early manuscript, an early Greek manuscript, this is what it's going to have there. That first bold word is didaskine. It means to teach. That second word, authentine, it means to exercise authority. So the passage is going to contain two infinitives. Now notice also the fact that there is a distance between those. How many words between those two infinitives? Yeah, five different words, all right? So does it seem likely, even though Greek is a different language from English, there's still certain things, certain conventions that, uh, that apply. Does it seem likely if you're trying to compare two things that you would separate them that far away from each other in the text? No, probably not, right? Whenever we're trying to express something as related to something else, we typically put it close uh, together. So Paul's intention in, uh, in um, uh, restricting both teaching and exercising authority seems to provide a clear contrast to the call that he has just offered. Look in verse 11, to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Teaching contrasts to learning Exercising authority contrasts to all submissiveness. So if he is commending two things there, I think he is also restricting uh, two things. Furthermore, there are much easier ways. If all Paul means is, I don't allow a woman to teach authoritatively, there are much easier ways in Greek for him to have uh, said that. So that's the first one. There are two distinct definitives that are separated in the text. The second one, there are two distinct negations. See the words that are underlined, uk and ude. Uke and Ude, uh, suggest a neither-nor sense that carries the force of the contrast of two different actions. The closest example we see of this in Scripture is actually in Acts 16.21, which says, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So it's clear from the context that the, that the speaker is implying that the Romans can neither accept nor practice two different things. They can't practice as long as they don't accept it, or they can't accept it as long as they don't practice it. He's saying they can neither accept nor practice these uh, sorts of things. That's the closest uh, that we have in Scripture. So likewise, Paul is not restricting just teaching or just exercising authority or just teaching with authority. He's restricting two different, though related, functions. If I were to say, you can go neither to a park nor a store, do I mean by that that uh, you just can't go to a store within a park or a park within a store? No, I mean there's two different things. You can't go to a park. You also can't go to a store. That's what's happening 
uh, here. And, uh, and so, the use of uh, two infinitives, the use of two distinct negations, the use of functional language rather than office language. In other words, if he would have just simply meant to say, women are not to serve as elders, he could have just simply said, women are not to serve as elders. Instead, he, in fact, the very next chapter is about elders. It would have been really easy for him to just simply say that if that was his intention. But instead, he points to these different uh, functions. Uh, and so, this text would absolutely prohibit women for serving as elders, but it goes beyond that into the various functions of the office, teaching and exercising authority. Fourth point, the nature of teaching itself. This is a huge point that I think is often so misunderstood by churches that would argue that a woman can, uh, can teach men in the church or even preach as long as they do so non-authoritatively. So then there's this really long discussion on their website or uh, whatever it might be over what is authoritative versus non-authoritative uh, teaching, which I think is really misleading because teaching within the church is always authoritative. That's what it's intending to be, right? My only authority as I stand up and teach is God's Word. I am making an appeal to authority. I am saying, listen to me. I'm not giving my opinions. That's why we do expository preaching here at uh, the Parkway Church. Why? Because we want to show there is an authority behind what we say. The authority is not that I'm smart. The authority is not that Zach's clever or wise or whatever it might be. The authority is God's Word. So all teaching within the context of the church is by its very nature authoritative. There is no such thing as non-authoritative teaching within the church. Does that make sense? Teaching is authoritative not on the basis of the context, whether it's on stage or Sunday school or theological quipping or the teacher, whether it's an elder or a minister or whatever it might be, but on the basis of the source of the teaching. That's what makes teaching authoritative is Scripture. So anytime you're teaching Scripture, it is by its very nature authoritative teaching. Again, we're not talking about calculus or geography or something like that. We're talking about Scripture being taught within the context of the church. So, uh, that's the, uh, the, the fourth reason that I don't think that this is just simply pointing to one thing. The fifth reason is because of the teachings of other Scripture. Scripture is its own best interpreter. So, if we have trouble interpreting one passage, it's helpful for us to go to other passages. And so, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 really quickly. 1 Corinthians 14, "...for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace." As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. For if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I want you to notice something, that this prohibition cannot be absolute because Paul has already written that women can pray and prophesy. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, it says, But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying so there is an opportunity for women to pray and prophesy. So whenever it says that a woman is to be silent or to not speak or whatever, it's not an absolute prohibition because he's already made reference to the fact that women, there are certain roles that women can have within uh, the gathering uh, that include uh, speaking. In other words, it's not saying that women should have no voice or that women should come in and not speak. Someone, asks, some, some, someone says hello to you and you don't say anything because it's shameful for you to speak. That's not at all... Uh, what his uh, point is. Uh, the same way that whenever we would say that uh, in First Timothy where it says, I want men to pray with their arms raised high, that doesn't mean every time you pray you have to raise your hands. There's a contextual um, uh, issue there that's, uh, that's going to be critical. 
So, in other words, this is not supporting the idea that women have no role in the church or are to be seen and not heard. It seems initially blunt, but what is it actually saying? By the way, this, this, uh, this phrase, be silent, is really interesting. There are ways in Scripture to say something more like shut up or to don't speak at all. There are much harsher ways to say be silent, but that's not the, the particular Greek phrase that he uses. It's actually the, uh, uh, the word that's used a number of times in the Gospels. When we looked at the Gospel of Mark, we saw over and over someone would try to confess that Jesus is the Christ, and what would he tell them? He would say, be silent. Now, is he telling them, don't say anything at all, ever? No, he's simply saying, on this particular subject, at this particular time, don't speak. Likewise, whenever uh, Paul says for women to be silent, he's not saying, don't speak at all. He's saying, in a particular context, regarding a particular topic, you are uh, not to uh, speak. And so, what does the prohibition mean? What is it that he's saying? There's two main interpretations The first one is that this is uh, related to the context of judging prophecies based on verse 29, which says, let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. So if this is correct, then the issue is not that women can't speak per se, but rather that they can't speak within the context of assessing prophecy as that is something that is uh, part of the role of uh, an elder. The second one is that this prohibition was related to the culture of dialectical uh, teaching. Dialectical teaching is a form of teaching that's kind of the, the, the Socratic method uh, of teaching, whereby you ask questions. Think of the way that Jesus is going to ask questions through Scripture. Uh, so whenever Jesus is wanting to teach something, he will say, let me ask you a question. Now, he's not asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking the question because he wants to teach. Uh, and so that is the other uh, reason that, uh, or, or uh, meaning that uh, some interpreters take to what Paul is saying here, uh, that he's not saying that you can't speak at all. He's simply saying, uh, not to, uh, to ask questions in such a way as to try to teach, try to assert your authority. Uh, this would explain why he says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. Uh, so, regardless of which two of those is correct, I think it's, it's, uh, it's easy to see that Paul is definitely limiting or definitely teaching that there are some forms of speech that are inappropriate for women within the context of the local church. He says, uh, he says two things in the passage that will be instructive to really figure out what kind of speech is restricted. He says that they are to be in submission, that if they desire to learn anything. Notice the way that that relates back to 1 Timothy, that they are to be in submission, and if they desire to learn anything. That's exactly what he said in 1 Timothy. He said that they are to learn with all uh, submission. So it's the exact same time type of prohibition that he gives in 1 Timothy. He's not intending to say that women can't speak at all. He's intending to say something very similar to what he has said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that women are not to teach or to exercise uh, authority, that women cannot speak in such a way as to teach or exercise authority in the context of the local gathering. So for all these reasons, I think it's highly unlikely that what Paul is intending to do here is, is merely to restrict authoritative preaching. Or, or teaching, or merely to restrict the office of elder. It seems like he is intending to do much more uh, than that and uh, pointing to these different, uh, two different functions, uh, although they are related. If Paul's main intent is to show how women might learn quietly with all submissiveness, then encouraging or allowing them to teach within the context of the local body uh, is not loving for them. It hinders them from actually flourishing in the way that God has created 
them to flourish. It's, it's neither good for women nor for men in the proper ordering of his body. And uh, so let me give you a few concluding thoughts, and then, uh, and then Zachary will come up with some, for some Q&A. Concluding thoughts, one, that women are valuable and are to be included in various ministries within the local church. They have been gifted with various gifts, talents, skills, and callings. Therefore, no church can fully function as the body of Christ without the service of its women. But at the same time, number two, there are scriptural boundaries within which women may minister. As with any boundaries in scriptures, these exist not to oppress God's people, but so they might best flourish. A woman flourishes by being a woman and pursuing that which corresponds to her calling, not by striving for that which is suitable for men. Third point, the prohibition in 1 Corinthians is not absolute, not to absolutely be quiet, and is specified, specified by the issue of authority and learning. Likewise, the prohibition against teaching in 1 Timothy is not absolute, as women are explicitly commanded to teach in certain roles. Fourth, however, some form of teaching and speaking is absolutely prohibited. Fifth, the office of pastor or elder is specifically limited to men, as it involves both teaching and exercising authority. By the way, when it comes to female deacons, that is an, an area that's progressively grayer because the uh, office of deacon doesn't inherently involve the responsibility to teach or to exercise uh, authority. And so, although we're not fully convinced that the Bible would forbid it, um, we currently only have uh, male deacons. Sixth point. So, if there are some things that are restricted, then uh, the sixth point. The teaching restrictions are dealing specifically with the context of the local church. Consequently, the prohibition should not be universalized or absolutized beyond the local church. Therefore, if we wanted to take this text and try to extend that beyond the local church, uh, then, uh, then things would get progressively gray and less relevant for us. And so questions like, can a woman teach in a seminary? What about re reading a commentary by a woman? When does a boy become a man? And so, therefore, women shouldn't uh, teach them any longer. What about blogs? All of those are great questions, and there's absolutely room for us to debate them. But we can't allow these more ambiguous things uh, to somehow cause us to ignore or deny what is absolutely clear, which is when it comes to the issue of teaching or exercise authority within the context of the local church. So let me give you some applications for Parkway, and then we'll, uh, then we'll do some Q&A. First one, that any and all roles and responsibilities that do not involve teaching men or exercising authority over men are open to females. Any and all roles and responsibilities that do not involve either of those functions are open to females. We won't have female elders. We'll never have female elders. We won't have females preaching on a Sunday. We won't have females teaching here in theological equipping or other contexts where men and women are gathered and Scripture is considered. So in any context where the Bible is taught, to, a, to men or to a mixed gathering, it will be taught by a man. In any context where the Bible is not taught, then we won't have that type of class. There's, there's no reason for us to have a non-Bible class here in the context of uh, the church. So, could a woman teach a class on world history? Sure. Could she do that within this building? Sure. But that would not be a function of the church, so we would not have that uh, here. So, how can women get involved uh, here at uh, Parkway in particular? Well, there's all kinds of formal ministries that you're probably aware of, serving in a preschool, the welcome team, uh, helping a uh, husband lead a community group, helping with worship. We don't have female, uh, we won't have a female leading worship, but certainly could accompany uh, Tim in singing and playing instruments. There's also informal opportunities, uh, just a, a myriad of them. 
Uh, we we certain, sometimes think that, that uh, serving is something that you have to do with a name tag here in the context uh, of the, the gathering on Sundays, but the vast majority of what happens uh, in terms of service within the body is something that happens without the, without, uh, without the confines or not within the confines of uh, these walls. Uh, it's happening uh, Monday through Saturday as you're engaging uh, your neighbor and coworker, and you're meeting with your community group, and your uh, women are gathering together and discipling each other and mentoring each other and all of these sorts of things. So I know of uh, a number of different examples of this. My wife is involved in this text chain, basically, where women just throughout the week are texting each other and saying, hey, I'm going to go to, they don't ever actually go to Chuck E. Cheese, but as an example, I'm going to go to Chuck E. Cheese today, and uh, if you want to join me, come on. And maybe only two of the 25 people on that text chain would go to that, but great, that's two people that didn't know of an opportunity and now know of an opportunity. There's also uh, all kinds of women who are gathering together throughout the week and praying for each other and, uh, and, and, and studying Scripture together and all of these sorts of inorganic, informal things which we find to be really good and healthy uh, for our body. There's also going to be a women's conference that we're going to do uh, here in, uh, in a couple of months and... Uh, and so there's all kinds of opportunities. You are not limited in your opportunities. It's kind of like if a, a man comes up and says, man, I have the gift of teaching. Where can I exercise that within the church? He might not ever get to teach a theological quipping. He might not ever get to actually preach a sermon in here. But there are millions of opportunities for him to just engage uh, with someone else, in, uh, to see somebody and to say, hey, do you want to start meeting together? Let's just start talking about Romans. Let's just start talking about systematic theology. To do that with a coworker, whatever it uh, it might be, and so the vast majority of ministry options are informal, laboring in prayer for the body, serving your neighbors and coworkers, community group members, gathering often, mentoring other women, all of these uh, sorts of things. So, there are a couple of boundaries that exist, but those boundaries exist as all of God's boundaries exist for our good, and so we want women to flourish as women, and we think that the way to do that is not by asking them to do something that God has prohibited from women to do, but by being women as God has commanded them and has created them to flourish and to thrive.